What's the first thing you'd do if you had more time in the day? Take a nap? Read a book? Talk with a friend? When you know what's important to you, it's easier to fit it into your schedule. Therapy can help you figure that out. BetterHelp offers affordable online therapy that comes to you. Start the process in minutes and switch therapists anytime. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash Writer's Voice today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Writer's Voice. This episode is brought to you by Progressive. Most of you aren't just listening right now. You're driving, cleaning, and even exercising. But what if you could be saving money by switching to Progressive? Drivers who save by switching save nearly $750 on average, and auto customers qualify for an average of seven discounts. Multitask right now. Quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. National average 12-month savings of $744 by new customers surveyed who saved with Progressive between June 2022 and May 2023. Potential savings will vary. Discounts not available in all states and situations. This is The Writer's Voice, new fiction from The New Yorker. I'm Deborah Treisman, fiction editor at The New Yorker. On this episode of The Writer's Voice, we'll hear Thomas McGuane read his story, Not Here You Don't, from the October 18, 2021 issue of the magazine. McGuane has published more than a dozen books of fiction, including the story collections Gallatin Canyon, Crow Fair, and Cloud Bursts, collected in new stories, which came out in 2018. Now here's Thomas McGuane. Not here you don't. Carrie was out of likely places to cross. The five-strand ranch fence was on the county line, ran south and would guide him to the canyon and the wild grasslands beyond. He could go all the way to coal mine rim in a view dropping into the Boulder Valley. Due south, he could see the national forest, the bare stones and burned tree stubs from the last big forest fire. After the fire, a priest who loved to hike had found 19th century wolf traps chained to trees. The flames and smoke had towered 40,000 feet into the air, a firestorm containing its own weather, lightning aloft, smoke that could be seen on satellite in Wisconsin. The foreground was grassland, but it had been heavily grazed. In the middle of this expanse, a stockade, where sheep were gathered at night to protect them from bears and coyotes, had collapsed. The homestead where Carrie's dad had grown up and where Carrie himself had spent his earliest years was in a narrow canyon perpendicular to the prevailing winds, barely far enough below the snow line to be habitable. Around his waist, in a hastily purchased Walmart fanny pack, he carried his father's ashes in the plastic urn issued by the funeral home, along with the cremation certificate that the airline required. Once these prairies had been full of life and hope, the signs were everywhere, abandoned homes, disused windmills, straggling remnants of apple orchards, the dry ditches of hand-dug irrigation projects, a cracked school bell, the piston from an old sheep-shearing engine. Where had everyone gone? It was a melancholy picture, but maybe it shouldn't have been. Perhaps everyone had gone on to better things. Carrie knew enough of the local families to know that things weren't so bad. Some had got decidedly more comfortable, 
while claiming glory from the struggles of their forebears. Where the first foothills broke toward the Yellowstone, a big new house had gone up. It had the quality of being in motion, as though it were headed somewhere. It had displaced a hired man's shack, a windmill, a cattle scale, and had substituted hydrangeas and lawn. After his father died, Carey had flown to Tampa and then driven north to the retirement community, where his dad had ended his days in a condominium that had grown lonely in his widowhood. Carey sped through the Bible Belt, where we the people were urged to impeach Barack Obama. The billboards along this troubling highway offered a peculiar array of enticements. Needlepoint prayers, alligator skulls, gravity deer feeders, pecan rolls, toffee. All nude bar with showers, vasectomy reversal, sinkhole remediation, laser lipo, say goodbye to muffin tops and love handles. It's a small world. I know, I made it, the Lord. A car displayed a sign that said, I work to cruise, in a cartoon ocean liner running the full length of the rear window with an out-of-scale sea captain waving from its bridge. We the people. Carey thought that his old man had a pretty great American life. He lived on a homestead through grade school, attended a small Lutheran college in the Dakotas, flown a Douglas A-4 Skyhawk named Tumblin' Dice in Vietnam, worked as an oil geologist all over the world, outlived his wife and their mostly happy marriage by less than a year, spent only 10 days in hospice care, watching his songbird feeders and reading the Wall Street Journal while metastatic prostate cancer destroyed his bones. Can't rip and run like I used to, he'd warned Carrie on the phone. He died with his old cat, Faith, in his lap. He'd once said to Carrie, in real psychological terms, your life is half over at 10. For him, 10 had meant those homestead years, wolf traps in the barn, his dog, Chink, a twenty-two rifle, bum lambs to nurture, his uneducated parents who spoke to him in rural English he remembered with wry wonder. As an adult, he'd still sometimes referred to business disputes as defugalties or spoken of people being in Dutch. The old pilot had observed himself in his hospice bed, chuckled and said, first a rooster, then a feather duster. His doctor had given him a self-administered morphine pump and shown him how to use it sparingly or on another setting, if you put it there, you'll go to sleep and you won't wake up. His warrior buddies at the retirement community had held a small service with tequila shots and music on a homemade CD that finished with a loop of the letter, which played until a carrier mechanic who'd serviced tumbling dice replaced it with taps. Carrie didn't spend long at the condo, long enough to meet the realtor, long enough to pick up a few things, including photographs of himself up to 16. What an unattractive child he was, he thought. The rest were shots of aircraft, pilots, crews, flight decks. Judging by the framed pictures, his mother was forever 22. 
He took his father's air medal, which was missing the ribbon, but had fascinated him as a child with its angry eagle clasping lightning bolts. That bird, he'd called it. He'd put it in his pocket and patted the pocket. He took the black and white photograph of his great-grandfather's corral with the loading chute and the calf shed in the distant log house. We lived in the corral, his father had joked. He told Carrie plainly that he had grown up poor. He remembered his grandfather who'd started the ranch prying the dimes off his spurs to buy tobacco, sticking cotton in the screens to keep the flies out. The old fellow had spanked him only once, and it was for deliberately running over a chicken with a wheelbarrow. Carrie's great-grandfather was a cowboy who moved through cattle like smoke, who could sew up a prolapsed cow in the dark with shoelaces and hog rings. His only child, Carrie's grandfather, had detested the place, had done almost no work, and had lost everything but the homestead to an insurance company. A tinkerer and a handyman, a tiny man with a red nose and a tilted ball cap. He ran the projector at the movie theater in town. When Carrie's father was home from the war, he took him to see his grandfather up in the booth. Carrie remembered the old man pulling the carbon rods out of the projector to light his cigarettes. An unpleasant geezer, he'd peered at Carrie as though he couldn't quite put his finger on the connection between them and said, well, well, well. Years later, his father said, as though shooing something away, Dad was a failure, always flying off the handle. My mother ran away during the war to build ships, never seen again, never in touch, had me in vamoosed. Dad used to look at me and talk to himself, can't figure out why the little son bitch is swarthy. Went broke trying to sell pressure cookers, once left a town in Idaho in disguise. He told me it was plumb hard to be born on unlucky land. In the projection booth, Carrie's grandfather said he was busy and told Carrie to get lost. Carrie's father stayed behind, and Carrie heard him say, Lord have mercy, Daddy, you'd give shit a bad name. Carrie's other grandfather, a glowing parent of Carrie's mother, a former Miss Arkansas, or a runner-up, depending on who was telling the story, was a lunatic entrepreneur named J. Lon Griggs, who'd made a fortune selling swamp coolers, reconditioned tractors, and vitamins. Grandpa Griggs had long white hair like a preacher's, and according to Carrie's father, was as crooked as the back leg of a dog. He adored Carrie, and Carrie adored him back. To reach the canyon, it was necessary for Carrie to circumvent a property vehemently marked with no trespassing signs, a house with a circular driveway that looked like a West Coast taco shop. A figure appeared on the lawn as he passed, a glint of binoculars, and presently an ATV dashed down toward him. Carrie pressed on, his fanny pack and its contents jabbing the small of his back, but encountered more signs. It was hard to say how far this property extended. The rider of the ATV stopped at the line of sagebrush that Carrie had hoped would make him less conspicuous, dismounted, and hung his binoculars on the handlebar. He was there, it was clear, to confront Carrie, and though he seemed in no hurry, Carrie sensed that it might not be appropriate to go. He waited as the man approached, 
a tall, white-haired fellow in khaki pants and a blue check shirt with a fierce smile on his face. The smile suggested to Carrie that the man was about to introduce himself, but instead he heard in bell-like tones as he drew closer, you're trespassing. I'm so sorry, but I'm on my way to visit my grandfather's homestead, just Carrie pointed at the mouth of that big coulee. Without changing his smile, the man said, there's nothing there anymore, and I own it. Ah, Carrie said, and continued on his way. He heard the man call out, Do you know our sheriff? He was born here. So was I, Carrie said. It was a beautiful day for a walk, and his mind was filled with family memories and memories of the girl he'd married and to whom he should have stayed married. His father had been displeased with him for his part of the breakup, a painful thought just now. Once he'd sat with his parents in their kitchen as they talked without wondering if he should be listening. Often they were tipsy with the mellow look in their eyes that he would eventually dread. The cop, his father mused, claimed I had wandered across the yellow line four times. I told him I was distracted because I was eating. The cop says, I don't see no food. I said, that's because I ate it. The cop says, just go home, you're drunk. They giggled complacently. Carrie remembered how peacefully they'd enjoyed the story. They had a kind of companionship, he supposed, one that began when his father had the uncertain future of a fighter pilot and his mother was a pilot's wife. Years later, when these two handsome people had wearied, one of those funny stories had turned into a quarrel and his mother had dropped her head to the counter and wept that she'd been Miss Arkansas. The world was my oyster. By then, they no longer shared these moments with Carrie, who, twirling a cap pistol, heard this from the top of the stairs. Then they were in love again, both love and rage fueled by alcohol. They found it irresistible. By late in the day, you could see how tiresome life had become without it. Over time, his father managed better. She went crazy with raccoon eyes and straw-like orange hair. On nights when she did her number a frightening performance of laments and despair. His father turned to him to explain, the situation is hopeless, but not serious. Soon she was reminiscing about being the lady love of various Arkansas landowning boyfriends. Carrie caught his father's eye. His father smothered a smile while Carrie fought back a dazed sensation. If it was funny, he couldn't bring himself to laugh. When Carrie was 12, his father asked him to record her. He thought it would help if she, sober, could hear how she sounded. I was wearing a wire. Carrie's former wife, a normal person raised by normal people, was fascinated by the ingenuity of dysfunctional families. Are you serious? Record your own mother? His parents increasingly relied on electricity. Cardioversion for his father's unreliable heart shock therapy for his mother's brain, a wire for self-awareness. Had to hook him up, Carrie explained to his therapist. He had little to say to or to hear from the therapist, doctor something or other. Carrie was there only to reduce his meds, not to hear in so many words that there was more to life than getting even with one's progenitors, 
Why pick on high-functioning basket cases? You might not know the homestead had ever existed were it not for the fragments of foundation, some persistent hollyhocks, a caved-in stock tank, and a bit of still diverted creek. When a homesteader failed, the neighbors swept in to take everything they could use, even the log walls. Here they had left a tub and a ringer and the lid of a washing machine. Carrie knelt to pick it up and saw the thick, gray-green mottled curl of a rattlesnake. He lowered the lid carefully, shutting off the sound of the rattle. He dusted his hands vigorously, raised his eyebrows, and exhaled. A hand-dug well was dry, the debris of its walls filling it. Some of the walls still stood, and here Carrie dropped the canister with his father's ashes and the Vietnam air medal, pushing in the remains of the wall to cover them. His father had asked him to do this. If you have nothing better to do, he thought of putting a memento of the place in his now collapsed fanny pack, but nothing caught his eye. Honestly, nothing about the scene was familiar at all. The landowner was at the fence as he passed. I told you there wasn't anything left. I wanted to see it. See what? Carrie winced, not much, just the lid of an old washing machine. I long ago hid five perfect arrowheads underneath it. They were still there. I didn't disturb them. Carrie kept walking as he heard the ATV head toward the homestead. When he got to the county road, his rental car was missing. What'll they think of next, he mused. It made for a splendid afternoon walk in open country, past the prairie foothills, a snowy saw edge far away. Birds dusted along the road, field sparrows, buntings, meadowlarks swayed atop mullen stalks and sang. His father had walked this road to his one-room school, where bear cubs had tumbled from the crab apples, and girls had ridden ornery horses with lunch pails tied to saddle horns. The library had consisted of National Geographics, in which eighth-grade boys had discovered the breasts of African women until farmers cut out the pages. No sense trying to catch a ride. Carrie had been walking for more than an hour, past the abandoned school in its seatless swing set, when a German car shot past with someone slumped in the passenger seat. He turned his back to the dust cloud. The town was at the bottom of a hill, a church tower, a root beer stand, a stray dog sleeping in the sun, newly planted green ash trees along the first side street, a truck selling Washington State peaches, an unsanitary-looking hot-sheet motel, four high-end sedans without a town plate parked in front. A bed and breakfast in a narrow, clabbered house looked welcoming enough, and he booked a room despite the shared toilet with an invisible, coughing lady beyond. The hostess's bare feet stuck out from her floor-length cotton dress. He tabulated her piercings as he counted out cash for the room. Enjoy, she said, a locution that had always bothered him with its incompleteness. No suitcase, she pulled on a strand of her hair, in my car. Where's your car at? I wish I knew. He let her quizzical expression hang in the air without elaborating. The cops had it locked up in a chained impoundment lot, $250. The 
the officer at the desk was eating a yogurt and put the spoon into the cup to take the money with his free hand. Carrie, on his way back to wash his face and brush his teeth in the shared John, stopped at the clinic, walked into the emergency bay, and inquired about his friend with the rattlesnake bite. Would it be okay to make a quick visit, see if the patient needed anything? The landowner was far less chipper now in his room, the back of the bed cranked up, ice water and green jello at his side. Where'd you get the purple arm? Carrie asked. The patient stared with hot eyes, but did not reply. He merely rolled up his sleeve to show the fang marks. Thought I'd check in, Carrie said. Got the car back. Hey, keep your chin up. He found a street-side garden show only two blocks from the B&B. A bank of annuals, mostly, but the smell was heavenly, combined with the elixir of old evergreens on front lawns. A small white house displayed a red liquid feeder whirring with hummingbirds. He bought a bottle of Grey Goose at the state liquor store next to the Stockman's Bank and used it to lure the hostess to his room. It went well, despite the old lady next door trying to spoil things with her theatrical coughing fits. We're so fucking drunk, the hostess slurred into the pillow. Carrie murmured, sure we are, but we got it done. He made certain that his misery was undetectable. She sat straight up to stare at him and ask if he was proud of himself, but he was already hiding in sleep. The last word he heard was classic. He returned the rental car to the Billings Airport's crowded lot. Park assist kept him from making small errors. The little backup TV, a gift to the hungover. Breakfast in Minneapolis restored him before he boarded the plane for the last leg of his journey east where he collapsed in an exit row. He was vaguely aware of the stewardess reciting the safety rules for that row. When she inquired whether he was willing to meet those conditions, he lost his train of thought and asked if there was a chart he could point to. Note to self, move up therapy session. Exemplary snooze in his sweet little apartment with his comfy chairs and bed, his favorite pictures, the view of a pleasant park, Sometimes as he gazed at it, he thought, no corporate ladder, no park view. He stumbled on three friends at his breakfast spot, Mary Lou the doctor in a Cubs hat, Jack with that stunner briefcase, Mimi the physical therapist and yoga girl with the American flag in her tooth. He did his best to abet the happy chatter as he took in the hum from the sidewalk. You're glad to see me, aren't you, he said. That stopped everything. Why did he need to ask? He pushed on with some details from the American West, but his heart wasn't in it, and his news was insufficiently exotic to change the table talk. These people got around. They'd seen empty dirt roads. At home, he looked at some drafts before heading to his office. The phone rang. His ex-wife, shall I stop over? What a beautiful voice, he thought. What a beautiful girl. Can't I find the strength for this? That was Thomas McGuane reading his story, Not Here You Don't. He's been publishing fiction in The New Yorker since 1994. 
You can hear more New Yorker fiction read by the authors on newyorker.com and on the New Yorker apps, available from the App Store or from Google Play. On the New Yorker Fiction Podcast, we invite writers to choose stories from the magazine's archives to read and discuss. This month, Donald Antrim reads The Balloon by Donald Barthelme. You can subscribe to that and other New Yorker podcasts by searching for The New Yorker in your podcast app. Tell us what you thought of this podcast by rating and reviewing The Writer's Voice in Apple Podcasts. Our theme music is by Jordan Batiste and Ross Michaels of North American Plastics. The Writer's Voice is produced by Michelle Moses. I'm Deborah Treisman. Thanks for listening. <laughs>